Sustainable Business Covered podcast for a special edition marking Fashion Revolution Week 2022. Coming up on today's podcast, we head to an upcycled fashion show in London hosted by Swap It Up, where my wardrobe out founder, Maria Loira, discusses how we can make fashion rental more ethical and sustainable, and where CEO Johnny Hewlett gives his views on changing consumer habits to make love clothes last longer. Yes, a huge welcome to this edition of Edie's long-running Sustainable Business Covered podcast, which has been created to mark Fashion Revolution Week 2022. I'm Sarah George, I'm Edie's senior reporter and resident sustainable fashion obsessive, and it's great to be bringing you this episode today. For this episode, it's just me in my home podcast studio. We've got no Luke because he's off in London looking at venues for our summer events and no Matt because he is busy preparing for our engagement themed online event on the 28th of April. More on that later, but for now, we've got three great interviews with folks who are working tirelessly to drive innovative change within the fashion industry from their respective standpoints. And we'll be bringing you these discussions over the next hour or so. And in all senses, the fashion industry needs innovative change at pace and at scale. Fashion Revolution Week was set up by the NGO Fashion Revolution in 2013 to highlight how current fashion systems are harming people and planet and to advocate for systems change. On the people side of things, the annual event was first intended to highlight the tragic Rana Plaza disaster. On April 24th, 2013, the Rana Plaza building in Dhaka, Bangladesh collapsed. Garment workers at five factories were indoors working at the time. More than 1,100 died and a further 2,500 were injured. Some of the injured required amputations. The factories in the building were supplying products to some big name brands including Walmart, Primark, Mango and Matalan. As the years have gone on, there is little evidence of systemic rapid change to support garment workers and their families and their communities at the scale we need. In 2021, Fashion Revolution estimated that just 2% of fashion supply chain workers globally are earning a living wage. As for the planetary impacts of fashion, the most visible to us here in the global north is probably waste. The Ellen MacArthur Foundation estimates that a bin lorry of clothing, shoes and accessories is burned, landfilled or dumped in nature every second. Mass-produced products are often challenging to recycle and have little resale value. Fashion is also a major contributor to water pollution, both in terms of plastic microfibers shedding from textiles and in terms of dye and chemical discharge in manufacturing communities. And in climate terms, by some estimates, it generates up to 10% of global annual emissions, more than the aviation sector three times over. So with the scene set, it's probably about time to segue into our first exclusive interview for this episode because we have a lot to get in. While acknowledging the systemic challenges associated with fashion, this episode will be showcasing some of the innovative system solutions. For our first interview, I went to London last month for an upcycled fashion show hosted by Swap It Up, Newham College and Good Shop. For those unfamiliar with Swap It Up, it's an organisation that provides a remote volunteering programme for teenagers so that they can host clothing exchanges at their schools and colleges. This show saw some of the garments swapped at these events, but upcycled by the Newham College students and then modelled by environmental activists. After the show, I was able to sit down with Swap It Up's founders Zakia Kaji and climate activist Noga Levy-Rappaport. We discuss how we can change public attitudes and habits around fashion consumption, repair and recreation, and how this can put pressure on the big brands. Let's start by playing that talk in full. Yes, so for this part of the podcast, I have taken our trusty podcast recorder out of our offices and I was going to say all the way over um, to Stratford, but I'm aware a lot of people will be listening to London and that won't sound that that far. Um, But it feels that far when it's a hot day like today and you're sweaty on the tube. Um, And the reason I'm here today is for the Swap It Up um, fashion show here at um, here at E20 um, where Swap It Up has worked with designers at Newham College and a whole bunch of other great people to showcase beautiful clothing made using upcycled 
um, clothing. So I'm here with Zakia, who is the founder and CEO of Swap It Up and long-term friend of ED, and with Noga, who is one of the environmental activists that is kindly here modeling the clothes and promoting the cause. So thank you so much for having having me along. How has it been um, organizing and hosting the show? It's been um, quite a whirlwind, really, um, organizing it all, but it's all turned out really really well in the end I'm really really pleased as to how it's gone I mean organizing anything you kind of have your nerves about is it going to go the way that you expect it to go and it has exceeded my expectations um, uh, we originally had actually planned to do this back in February it was supposed to be during London Fashion Week mm. and it was supposed to kind of be bringing the attention around the issues of the fashion industry whilst it was a period of time that everyone was kind of celebrating the art behind fashion. We wanted to kind of show the other side of it and suggest um, an alternative. We had to postpone it, um, unfortunately, because of um, the storm that was happening and we just decided it was too dangerous um, to ask everyone to come along. And so we just saw that as a silver lining of going, hey, it gives us more time to make it an even better event. So that is kind of what's led it to being here now. And we're just so grateful for everyone that's helped us like pull it off. We've done it tight tight budget um, and so yeah it's definitely exceeded my expectations and everything that it's managed to achieve. Well huge congratulations I understand you normally do a lot of work in schools and colleges so it's great to have something that's public facing we've had people popping past and saying what is that my kid is interesting we had someone walking past just applauding <laughs> at the end so I guess it must be nice to have a wider audience. Yes it is it's quite nice to kind of we're also doing a swap shop at the same time because what we normally do um a swap shop is we run clothes swaps in secondary schools and so we wanted to do a clothes swap here today as well and so it's given us an opportunity to kind of promote the work that we're doing and to encourage more people and a lot of the models that we've had on the catwalk have all been teenagers um and so it's kind of just a way of us expanding the outreach and letting more people know about all the work that we're doing um so at the same time as raising awareness about the issue it's also raising awareness about specifically our organisation and all the work that we do. Mm -hmm. So solutions focused as yes, well. Yes, very much. Great. And Noga, I'm aware I've, I need to come on to you <laughs> and talk to you about your involvement um, here. I know this is a podcast, um, but these guys are sat in beautiful upcycled clothing. Zakia's got this sort of puffball strapless um, autumnal coloured dress and Noga's wearing this beautiful denim. Is it a two-piece or a yeah, three-piece? Yeah, it's got like a skirt, a little mini bag. It's beautiful. Um, with with panels and distressing and flowers all over it. Um, and I had a look at your profiles online after coming to this and I can see all the great work you've been doing in climate justice. So how does that tie into fashion for you? What motivated you to come and take part today? Well, I mean, I think some of the biggest questions around slowing down fashion in the past few years that have withheld um, a lot of people in environmentalist spaces from getting involved have been issues around accessibility and affordability and you know, will younger people really be interested in this? Will this speak to um, what our generation is looking for? Will this speak to kind of the hustle culture that is instilled in us from such a young age? Um, but I think events like this not only show very clearly that slow fashion is something that can very literally be tailored to everyone and that can be a wonderful experience, an experience that gives a lot of hope, um, an experience in creativity and collaboration, which of course underpins so much of what climate justice activism is all about, and can remind us of the different methods of campaigning and the diversification of tactics that we can use to spread awareness about environmentalism. And of course, underpinning all of that is the fact that fast fashion is a huge, huge contributor to climate change and the amount of emissions that are produced every single year by fast fashion are through the roof and, and for so many years have been very much ignored, not only um, through kind of a lack of analysis of individual pieces, how much energy and water does this take to produce, um, but also through a total blind eye that's been given to the actual profit models and supply chains um, and real global commerce that a lot of fast fashion is, is tied to. And I think events like these not only show how localised fashion can be, um, but take very literally the meaning of slow fashion and of upcycling and how we can distribute that amongst each other, how we can create really exciting pieces for each other and, and keep pushing fashion forward without concerning ourselves with um, you know, questions of are we engaging in planetary destruction whilst we do so? Of course, and that actually comes on to what I was going to ask because you'll be you've worked on this um, for years, Zakia. So talking to 
yeah, young people, um, those at secondary schools, those at college about circular fashion. And we've mentioned that obviously there's a massive environmental benefit, but we've also talked there, you mentioned hope, which I think is a super strong word, but a super accurate word. Um, and there's also other things that we've mentioned like creativity um, and, and upskilling yourself, so sewing and designing. Um, so I wanted to get your views on how we explain the benefits of circular fashion to those that might not be super engaged. Is it a case of going harder on the environmental piece or just selling the other benefits like, as we've said, skills, creativity, community? Yes, I think that actually we should be kind of highlighting all of the positives because there are so many positives to kind of looking at a more circular model for pretty much any kind of production that we look at but also specifically within fashion. And I mean, one of the things that I have noticed within kind of the sustainable fashion um, sector is a lot of the time when it's still creating new things from kind of raw materials, um, one of the problems that we're still seeing a lot of is the lack of inclusivity in terms of size inclusivity um, and uh, broader inclusivity as well. And one of the things that I know is that actually the most sustainable thing is for us to kind of just keep using the clothes that are already in existence. We in the UK we throw away 350,000 tonnes of worn but still wearable clothing every year and so it's you know we've got so many clothes that we can be using can be wearing um, whether or not those are clothes that everyone can wear because of the lack of inclusivity is another issue which is where the idea of upcycling comes in and the idea of creativity comes in quite a bit because it gives us that opportunity to you know rip apart those clothes and we can put them back together in a way that you know create it that option for creativity to look at how we can be more inclusive essentially and so doing that through upcycling um, is a really, really important way that we need to kind of look at. We can't just be looking at, we are upcycling these clothes, we have to be looking at how we can be sustainable more socially as well as environmentally at the same time. Um, and so that was a really important thing. And in the brief that we gave to uh, the Newham College students, that was one of the things we wanted to really focus on was size inclusivity. But we did actually come into a little problem being around uh, mannequin sizes that they had access to when they were actually designing them and they were I think max a size 10 were the mannequins that they could actually design their clothes around and so that was kind of a concerning point and it limited their options because that is how they've been kind of trained to design their clothes around mannequins and so we have to kind of be looking at how do we make it more accessible for people and for designers to be designing clothes that are going to be more inclusive um, and so looking at things such as mannequin size is going to be another thing that I hadn't thought of until we kind of ran into this as a little problem um, so yeah there's obviously loads of things that we would have liked to have done much more but again we were on a really tight budget um, so it was just kind of whatever we could pull off and I'm very happy with what we have managed to pull off but of course there's always things that we can always improve on. Well I'll have to watch this space and come along to something um, in, in the future then. Um, and I wanted to talk specifically because this episode is for Fashion Revolution Week about the theme that's been chosen for this week. And the theme selected this, this year is Money, Fashion, Power, um, which when you think about the events of the past couple of years, what other theme could you really pick? We've seen so much news um, about how brands with lots of money and power have failed to protect workers across their supply chains and failed to protect the environment. You mentioned London Fashion Week. We actually saw protests there. Um, about this um, and a, a lot of us will have seen this and will have changed our models, we'll have had more time to maybe think about sewing and upcycling um, but yet while a lot of us have seen this some online retailers saw huge profit boosts and you mentioned what do young people actually want, what are we being educated about and the fact remains that obviously you could go on Shein and get tops for £3 a pop. Um, so I wanted to get your views on how we stop this disconnect in thinking um, and get people to support the organisations that are more responsible in terms of money, fashion and, and power and how we can position this, as you mentioned, as a way to take a stand. Because we see a lot of activism around fashion as at Fashion Week. It's people outside with paint, um, attaching themselves onto stuff, protesting, shouting. But what we've seen here is super creative and super solutions focused. So, yeah. In a nutshell, your views on money, fashion, power, please. I don't know who'd like to start. Yeah, I mean, I think, firstly, just kind of starting from what you said at the end there, it's, 
it really shows you know, the, the multiple prongs that we need in order to take that stand, whether it's protesting at Fashion Week or whether it's creating our own fashion, we need all of this at once. And part of using that is kind of telling that story that young people need to hear and young people everywhere need to hear really, which is you know, the history of emissions and climate change in fashion. What is that story we're telling and, and what is the role that fashion plays? Because so often young people in particular don't get involved in environmentalism because they don't feel that they have enough knowledge on the subject. They don't feel like they're aware of how they can get involved or how they can collaborate with people already working in that space. Um, and that lack of knowledge is not only fairly intentional, I think, but also um, incredibly paralyzing, um, which of course poses a real, real concern and real issue. And in order to dispel these problems, um, I think the number one thing is to point the, point the finger. I think we have to very openly state who is to blame. And, and you mentioned, of course, a lot of these retailers. So we have like Boohoo and Pretty Little Thing and lots of people who, I found it really interesting how you chose these words, like they failed to protect their works, they failed to protect the environment because I think if we're talking about it from their perspective, I actually think it's it's a formidable success what these brands are doing. It's a very intentional um, design in their profit business model um, to not pay um, garment workers enough, whether it's factories in Leicester um, or in many parts of Bangladesh and India in particular. Um, that is how these companies make such a huge profit margin because they're so willing to sell um, clothes at prices and wages that their workers will never get to see. Um, and actually we need to dispel a lot of the fogginess around um, the untruths that a lot of these brands sell, that they're you know, fairly treating their workers, that they're paying ethical wages, um, and that three pound for an incredibly expensive top that would have taken hours and hours to make is somehow an acceptable price. Uh, the um, amount of crochet tops that are coming back, mm. this is something for me. Okay, people that are listening, crochet is a bugbear of mine. Um, crochet cannot be made by machine. So if you see something that's crochet online and it's super cheap, that had to still be made by hand. So yeah. I'm assuming that's some of the kind of product you're sourced, talking absolutely. about. Um, and Yes, I mean, so much of this is hidden by misinformation or um, by avoiding directly answering a lot of questions that have come up over the last couple of years. And that's, again, how we've seen this huge profit boost. Um, and it really all comes back to the bigger picture, which is, you know, how do we talk about the history of climate change? Again, fashion plays a role because the business models that fashion is built on is a part of the same macro model that climate change comes from. Um, and that is a reckoning and a hard and difficult and often very ugly truth that business leaders have to um, grapple with. And it's a reckoning that may occasionally uh, lead people to realizing that the answer in, in, some of these, in some of these cases is that your company is simply beyond reform and the model that you've been utilizing uh, can never do anything but damage to the environment. And those are companies like Boohoo and Pretty Little Thing and a lot of these places um, where they prioritize online retail because they know that it's an easier way to mask the deeply unethical, exploitative and extractivist methods that are used. Um, and really, I think this is at the root of so much of fashion. It's why we have this theme of money, fashion power, because fashion is so often a mask for where power gets its money from, where it gets its funding from, how it supports itself, how it upholds itself, how it, you know, maintains its dominance, um, and how it maintains a global system that really only ever leads to the massive, massive overexploitation of, for example, so many garment workers. Um, and I think, well, I can only hope. Uh, we're bringing it back to that word that um, the Fashion Rev Week can be a moment for a lot of businesses to take a very, very long, hard look in the mirror. And of course, we have this diversification of tactics because not everyone is willing to take that long, hard look in the mirror. And that's why people are out protesting in the streets and it's why people are creating their own designs and it's why we're sharing them because we know we're going to begin building you know, this better, sustainable world one way or another. And if that means that fashion business leaders have to get left behind, then so be it. We don't have the time to wait around.
Exactly. Zakia, I can see you nodding. <laughs> so would you like to give your thoughts in a nutshell on yeah, this yeah, theme? Yeah, I mean, completely agree with everything that Nogo just said. It was just, um, yeah, whilst we also point the finger, like you were saying at the end, they a lot of them are so adamant and really stubborn that they're not going to want to change without a massive, massive push mm. from... We need that pressure. We need to build that pressure. So that is where it takes us individuals having to make kind of behavioural changes is about pushing that pressure onto these business leaders who they're vying for power and they're vying for money and the best way to do that is through so many exploitative practices. And so if we kind of cut off, we have the money, we have the ability to cut off that money and withhold that power from them by simply not buying the stuff that they're selling. And so the idea of this show and the idea of Fashion Revolution Week is to look at all of the other solutions that we can be looking at instead of the fast fashion companies that we're so tired of just buying from over and over and over again and how we can actually be looking to a more sustainable future in terms of being more kind of aware I think awareness is a massive, massive problem, but mm. it's that lack of education that people just don't realise in the first place how these things are so exploitative and there's kind of that surface level knowledge that you have and I think that us as activists, we know all of these things and we kind of expect that everyone knows these things, um, but then sometimes you have to ground yourself and remember that we've been on this journey for how many years now that we have kind of educated ourselves on all of these things that are happening. That not everyone does and so we need to make sure that that education is there that enough people know about these things in the first place and what we also need to be looking at is the problem of greenwashing and educating around that and how kind of the transparency angle and things Mm -hmm. we need to be looking at more and how kind of educating and how we can dissect that transparency um and see what it actually means because a lot of the time you know people will see fast fashion brands with their kind of conscious label or their um, sustainable label and go oh it's fine I won't buy the other stuff but I'll buy that because that must be sustainable right um, but again us activists will kind of look at it and go we know that that's just not at all something that is going to be sustainable they don't have any legal definition they can just stick those words on there and so it's you know important for us to make people aware of those issues and if we have a much bigger kind of platform around transparency even companies especially smaller companies who want to be doing the more sustainable things and there is problems to do with um, infrastructure to make it as sustainable as possible as long as that transparency is like the first step it's kind of in my mind's eyes as long as transparency is the first step and then going this is what we're going to be doing and it's an action plan that everyone can see but then you have to put those things into place you can't just say we're going to put those things into place or this is things we can't do you have to actively be trying to put those things into place so that we can be more sustainable and I think yeah it's really important that we all kind of take a long hard look at the fashion industry as a whole and kind of all of us learn more about the different aspects, the different greenwashing techniques, what words actually mean um, and yeah I think a lot needs to go into kind of definitions and legal definitions. I think another thing where kind of governments can come into this is going you can't stick the word sustainable onto this label unless it meets these certain criteria and things like that. Again it's going to be difficult to get you know governmental policy to do these sorts of things but these are all things that kind of need to be put in place as long as there's like legislature saying you can't just say stuff without backing it up as well so I think you know transparency is a massive thing but also awareness so that we all know what these things mean so they kind of have to go hand in hand. Thanks so much once again to Zakia and Noga for their time and for having me along to that event. If you'd like to learn more about Swap It Up you can at swapitup.org that's s-w-o-p it up.org. We've got two more exclusive innovators to bring you interviews with this episode, so join me after the jingle and we'll be moving swiftly on to the next, which is all about clothing rental. Hello 
and welcome back for the second part of this Sustainable Business Covered podcast, all about innovating for a fairer and more sustainable fashion system. After looking at clothing exchanging and upcycling in Swap It Up's fashion show, we're now taking a virtual diversion over to Bristol for a discussion on clothing rental. And our guest for this topic is Maria Loira, founder of Wear My Wardrobe Out, a rental service which, unlike many other rental services, carries out repairs and alterations. Maria can explain how her business works a lot better than I ever could, so I'll leave it up to her to fill you in on the details. She also gives her views on why she thinks this approach is needed, how other rental platforms could overcome some common sustainability pitfalls, and how we can ultimately change culture to make buying new the last port of call for fashion. So here's that discussion with Maria in full. A very good afternoon to you, Maria. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. Um, How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you for coming on. Did you say that you were dialing in in from um from yeah company HQ? I am. Yeah, I'm in the uh, the atelier studio. I've just uh, I finished upcycling a, a top this morning, and then I just did a a bit of prep for our podcast. So yeah, it's all uh, all hands go here in Bristol. So yeah, it's nice to be in one of the most sustainable cities in the UK. So it's always always good to be here and feel right at home in Bristol. Yeah, we have so many of our Leaders Club members from Bristol. I must make the trip um, sometimes and see see about these sustainability credentials. But no, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule um, to represent Wear My Wardrobe Out on this podcast. Um, and I've obviously got a full briefing note for this episode, but for those who are listening and will not have got that note, um, could you please give us a brief introduction to Wear My Wardrobe Out? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, where my wardrobe out are a we're a truly circular and sustainable service as a brand business. So, we uh, we provide um, curation, handpicked, rented, repair, reinvented, recycle, and upcycled fashion as a service. Uh, so, we're based in Bristol as our headquarters, uh, but we do offer services across the entire UK. Uh, so we only source items that are already in circulation that are or that are due to go to landfill. And um, so the view is our business is completely end-to-end circular, just reusing, rewearing, repairing. And then when items get to almost beyond repair, we upcycle them into alternative items so that essentially we're prolonging or extending the life of that item right up until its end of life. So we work with a view that we don't um, we don't support brands. We look at an almost like a brand agnostic view. So we don't kind of shun certain brands because of things that they've sort of adopted in the past. We try and sort of look at somebody who's already actually bought those items. So therefore, it's our obligation and duty to make sure that those items get worn and used and reworn. So um, we try and get our consumers of our sustainable service to almost look beyond the brand and look at actually fashion as a lifestyle lifestyle and a, a, a I guess a adoption model as opposed to a functional model which is then buying sort of supply and demand and um, so we we try and get our customers to sort of challenge the way that they view fashion um, and really ask themselves whether they actually enjoy that item aesthetically or whether you know they they just want to get hold of that item because it's of a particular brand and what's kind of driving their behaviors so we try and house that all under our, our head office in bristol um where we redesign and reinvent items constantly and um, based on what our customer needs are that is a big vision um thank you for the introduction and i wanted to get a feel on what motivated you to do that because that is as i just said a, a big vision um lots of re's lots of different business models so yeah what what made you get get into that i mean i've i've always um loved fashion i've always loved it and i've always looked for really bold bright items i've always um been really interested in fashion art um i've always altered my own clothes because Unfortunately, um, being from sort of Italian Irish descent, I've got a very weird body shape. So things that I would buy on the high street when I was younger um, would never fit me. So I'd always have to sort of hand alter things either on the waist or the hips um, because I was two different sizes. So I always kind of really understood um, the dynamic behind clothes and their kind of construct and you know how to tailor them to essentially make them more wearable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've 
weirdly then I went into working in finance because initially I did want to um, have a fashion career but you know back when I was looking at fashion it was almost like impossible to to get into the fashion industry the barriers to entry were just so high it was very elitist that I actually chose a career in finance um so in the last sort of two or three years, I saw almost like a gap in the market whereby um, fast fashion brands I saw were, you know, quite frighteningly um, gaining market share at a rapid pace. I saw quite mm-hmm. a few um, high street household names like Arcadia Group, Debenhams, um, you know, Karen Millen, um, Coast, all of these brands that had been in the high street when I was growing up that were almost validated for quality or recognised for quality. So they were the good brands. They had a, a very kind of reputable service um, behind them. Um, and the clothes essentially were priced at a level that you associated it with almost like a concession brand and quality. And yeah. um, having seen those high street um, stores and those big brands go from the high street um, and then looking into the fact that you know, some of the fast fashion brands has actually acquired those. And um, it really worried me because it meant that instead of there being a sort of high street boom and all the kind of hyper local in the community side of things and jobs for com- people living in the community, essentially you were diverting that market share to what were e-tailers. So taking um, brands away from the high street, putting them under fast fashion group brands and then essentially buying those customers up within the market. But really just driving everything through online sales which again is sustainable in one sense but in the other um if it's if it's then promoting the overconsumption, I thought actually because I really understand fashion and I've got a real passion for it I just really felt that um I needed to take the business skills that I'd acquired over the last sort of 10 to 15 years working in finance and commercial in lots of very different businesses in lots of different industries including supply chain recruitment, consultancy, um, and apply those to what was a much needed um, change um, in the fashion industry and actually across the UK, just in the way that we were behaving as consumers and the poor impacts to our planet and the really poor um, behaviours that were being driven by these fast fashion brands um, and actually the market share and it just going one way. I felt a real obligation to leave my job um, and risk my life savings into setting up this business because I really truly believed that um, it was a business that that we needed in the UK. We we, alterations are too expensive. They're not accessible. Um, There's just too much temptation um, for people to just default to to buying new um, and indulging in fast fashion because the alternative operating models are either in their infancy or they're not scalable at the moment um or they're just they're just not getting the the traction required to really help people to change their behaviors so um i really wanted to help accelerate that journey for the uk and bristol in particular as um the city that i i live in i've been here for the last sort of 20 years um i just felt that it was my duty almost to use the skills i had for good um as opposed to being sat in a job where you know, I was earning a fantastic salary and paying off my mortgage, but actually I didn't feel like I was doing anything particularly purposeful. That makes sense. I'm definitely going to have to come down and check this out because this is just intriguing me. Um, yeah, you or, do. You do, definitely. Um, and you mentioned, obviously, that over the past couple of years, we've seen yeah some more awareness to mending and being more creative and swapping and thrifting, but then also some potentially worrying trends in fashion retail but something we've also seen is more questioning of rental and how that works so I remember following the news last summer there was a report that was out in a Finnish scientific journal called environmental research letters um, and it essentially said that renting clothes can have a high environmental impact and that got a lot of a lot of like headline space um, in in the tabloids, but when they were looking at what renting meant, they went they meant um, an individual renting clothes very frequently um, from a company that purchased like lots of new goods purely to rent them out, so lots of different sizes and styles, um, and from a company that doesn't do some of the in-house work that you guys do in terms of clothing care, repair, alterations, upcycling. 
Um, so I wanted to get your feelings on yeah how you felt when that dropped and how we can get past some of the misconceptions of that study and make rental more ethical and more sustainable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the business that I started primarily um, was for renting, but it was renting my own clothes out. So although it was under um, the business brand, which is where my wardrobe out, it was essentially the business name is where my wardrobe out is a peer, but also wear it out until the end of it's almost like economic life by just sharing it with people within the community and across the UK. So I think the initial where my wardrobe out and the renting um, model as it is, I think it really only works if um, if it's peer to peer, if I'm honest, because essentially if you're buying in clothes to then rent them out, you're potentially just creating a, a new channel for brands. So there's no kind of incentive for those brands to produce less and for people to consume less because all you're doing is just you're just substituting going and buying stuff in the shops and then only wearing it once to diverting that behavior to the same almost kind of behaviors but just through a rental model um so i do actually think the the study itself was primarily based on people traveling um you know to actually pick up an item and then return it and then actually the the distance of creating almost like the delivery end to end and then the forward logistics, the re reverse logistics, the packaging and all of the kind of unnecessary waste. So I think my challenge would be, um, I think renting really works with the hyper local model. So um, almost like a franchise business, if you were going to have a one stop shop that is within a local community and it is people renting peer to peer. So if I'm going for a, a night out with some friends, I could see who in my area, if I want to wear a leopard print coat and some red boots, I can go on and see who's got those within, you know, a certain catchment area um, and rent that out. And then essentially, instead of getting in my car and driving it, I think with the hyper local model, there's lots of bike couriers, there's um, the voice scooters, there's now um, the first issue electric bikes. So there's lots of alternative sustainable, you know, ways of actually getting those items. I mean, you can even walk, you can cycle. So I think the hyper local model will, would really help the rental side of things, because it means that ultimately, if people are just swapping or resharing their items within their local community under a trusted rental brand so they know that it's a safe environment for them to share clothes and rent clothes um, and that actually at the same time you're acquiring a network of amateur sewers that are actually able to create um, or reinvent items once they have some minor wear and tear because the thing when people say alterations and repairs and um, they get really overwhelmed because they think you have to be a qualified seamstress but actually you don't um the modern day sewing machines that exist now a lot of them are digital essentially i've got a sewing machine that's um a brother sewing machine it's got um 85 different settings on it of which i use three and um, so i do i think that really to have that um that real true benefit to um sustainability in the planet and actually to reduce um all of the harmful impacts of fast fashion and actually fashion in general having a hyper local rental repair um upcycle reinvention almost like community that instead of diverting that money to companies that are setting up rental you know opportunities within either their own brand so like Ralph Lauren have got rental um LK Bennett have got rental so instead of doing that direct to consumer model that actually you're just diverting that disposable income to each other within your hyper local community as opposed to you know the big fast fashion brands or the you know the really big brands that essentially um they're just they're just doing it because you know they're under I guess one of the challenges it's under the geese of sustainability but actually it's it's borderline greenwashing because the majority of their business isn't sustainable they've just got this small element that is now renting the thing that i worry about with the other rental brands that i've seen in the market now and actually there's there's three or four that are really um, gaining traction and, and between them i think they've had about eight million pounds worth of seed investment because 
they've got an app therefore lots of people want to invest in a, a technology related business even though um what comes with that again is usually distance selling and distance renting and distance behaviors which unless you're having um bike couriers or you're reducing almost like the journey time and the logistical i guess impacts to the environment you substitute one sustainable behavior and you replace it with something that isn't sustainable so you're you're not net neutral almost um so i guess in terms of a truly ethical model i do think that if these rental um, platforms are actually managing wardrobes on behalf of the brands and essentially renting out their dead stock, then what concerns me is it's not sustainable or ethical because, for instance, if you're if you're buying a dress from a, a mid to high end concessions and you're living in London and you pop to a, a Regent Street and you go and buy a dress and it's, say, £400, then you add it to one of the rental platforms to say, oh, rent this dress for £70 for three days, including a cleaning fee, and it gets posted from, say, London up to Scotland. And then you have the commission that you pay the platform, the renter pays pays a commission. So ultimately, you're paying 20 to 30% commission plus the postage there, plus the return postage, plus insurance for the item. What worries me is you're just creating... Um, an avenue for almost the brands to keep producing the same amount because people will still continue to buy those items. You're almost unlocking a new um, customer base of people that could never access those brands in the first place. Um, so you're almost like not reducing the intake of clothes or the collections that are being produced because you're just creating a new brand because ultimately these, these brands would have sold their dead stock at wholesale to people like TK Maxx um, or to some of these kind of websites where they sell them off for everything for a fiver. So I do think that um, the brands and the managed wardrobes, they do need to have some sort of ethical standard behind them, whereby if the rental platforms are renting out on behalf of the brands, there has to be some sort of joint um, metric that shows that over the course of time, these brands produce less um, because items are being rented out up to 20 times more and they're actually being repaired by the brand because the brand essentially is gaining back the RRP and they should be including that in their commercial model. So if they're now actually sell if they're selling through at the rate they were in terms of the RRP and they're also renting out their dead stock and essentially recouping their RRP, I think that it really, there is an obligation for the brand then to be um, repairing and, and, you know, renewing those items at almost like zero cost for, for the end user. That makes sense. I was, I was going to ask for advice about changing business models but it sounds like yeah that life cycle analysis is important to make sure that you're not greenwashing seeking good partners to make sure you're not just putting the the um the bad environmental impact somewhere else um in the value chain and ultimately just having more imagination not retrofitting something small to something that's ultimately um unsustainable so I, I wanted to ask in all of that as well, when we hear from businesses saying it is hard to change business models or to look at an alternative business model that's not linear, um, we get asked, well, how do we get customers to do the behaviour change, to look um, locally, to not go for buying something new when they don't have something to wear or when something is broken? Um, so I wanted to get your view on communicating this with with consumers and getting people on board um, to make change because the theme for this year's Fashion Revolution Week is um, money, fashion, power. So there's going to be a lot of focus on, yeah, how can we save our money um, and yeah. who do we give power to and ultimately isn't creativity the most important thing in all of this? And, and actually, I think that's a, an absolutely brilliant question because ultimately, if you think about the Instagram culture of influencers, you just assume that um, people know what they want, but actually the reason why influencers are, you know, earning ridiculous amounts of money by posting five dresses and a bikini overhaul is because 
people need help to work out what they want to wear and how they want to consume. And I think the old model would have been you'd see some adverts on the TV or you'd get push no notifications or emails from the brands. But now, actually, um, I would say we need to have the influencers and the people who do actually gain that mass audience of people that listen to them and they buy into what they're saying and they you know they're leaders essentially although they're influencers they are actually um driving lots of adoption but some of them for the the fast fashion brands so i think it has to be um a collaborative approach which is the brands have to be helping to educate people on how they can consume fashion differently. But also, I think the marketing and the influencers that are associated to those brands um, really need to be working with brands that are more sustainable. Because if you've got, say, 200,000 followers, one 60 second reel actually in 60 seconds can reach an inordinate amount of people very quickly and get them to understand renting repair how to reinvent their clothes how to actually join workshops to enable themselves to make these minor repairs themselves because it's very difficult people are very busy you know if you've got children you've got a job you've got all these other distractions in life it's very easy to just go and buy something online or have 10 things delivered from a brand because you can get next day delivery for 9.95 unlimited or it's a constant 70 percent off so it's almost like how do we we need to actually make it more accessible we need to make it frictionless and we actually need to make it um widely available at an affordable economic price for consumers and at the moment um i'm not seeing that in the market i'm not seeing it at all so therefore People might want to behave, change their behaviours, but there's just not the um, the business model out there that exists to enable that. So um, having the hyper local model, I think, is essential because what you want to do is allow people to consume fashion in the way that it just kind of fits into their everyday life. So Timpsons is a great model. Timpsons and Johnsons, you know, if you go into a Sainsbury's or a um, Asda in the UK there's always a Timpsons there's always a Johnson's there's always you know Specsavers or some kind of franchise business that's there um, that people join and bring their shoes their keys or whatever it is they're dry cleaning their alterations to somewhere that they're already going to because obviously food shopping is an essential part of most people's everyday lives so I think with the city areas, inner city areas across most of the, the UK now, they're being pedestrianised, there's um, congestion charges, there's lots of things being put, put in place to almost make it difficult for people to drive into these cities. But actually, my concern is you're then just going to drive them to order things and consume online, which again takes away from the local community and you know actually buying local services or what is the i guess the optimistic view would be that 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 group of people then starts to consume locally but when they look around their local area if they don't have those small brands that they can buy from that are affordable because people are just used to buying at such low price points now that um to try and buy independent or sustainable brands people don't understand that you're actually paying for that person's time who's created the item and that it's made from quality and you know you're not paying for the physical substance of the material you're actually paying for someone's i guess intellectual property in their design aesthetic so you're buying almost like a piece of art in a in the form of a an item that you're going to wear and you're going to consume but that's almost it's very difficult to tap into the the mass market of what is the UK consumer market um, because they're the people who are driving the growth in fast fashion but it's not because they're really bad people or they just don't care I think it's because there isn't a one-stop shop almost in their local area or that is frictionless or accessible or affordable for those people to divert their, beha their behaviours um, and try new things because they're very busy and they're used to a I want it now so I'm going to get it now and your next day and you I don't need to plan anything because there's always like nine or ten different brands that I can go to and they'll deliver 
to my local parcel shop via, via Hermes or DPD. So I think ultimately what I'm trying to say is the hyper-local community consumption model, I think, is really the only way to really help people to adopt a more sustainable way of consuming not just fashion but all of these other services that you know they need in their their everyday lives great well i i could honestly stay and talk about that all all day especially <laughs> about the the things that you mentioned about um about you know how we view cost and how we view art and how we view accessibility and how this fits in with a wider cultural and behavioral um, shift, but I'm I am afraid that that is all the time that we have on this particular segment of the podcast. So thank you so much, Maria, for your time. That's okay. It's been my pleasure, um, and I, I would love to come back on. And you know, I could talk about this for for a long time because I really do feel like um, there's a great opportunity for the UK to really, you know, pioneer and and lead the way to you know a much more sustainable way of consuming fashion than I think globally. Um, you know, Europe and the US, all the, all these other countries will actually follow. Um, it'll be disappointing that behaviours only change when the law changes. Um, I think we can do better. Um, and I would love to be part of helping people to adopt those new ways of consuming fashion ultimately. So thank you so much for, for having me on today. It's been a real pleasure. A huge thank you once again to Maria for her insight and for her time. Now we still have one more interview to squeeze into this episode, so once again I'm going for a slightly clunky but super brief segue. After looking at the different ways of accessing clothing in the first two parts, the third part of this episode looks at clothing care, so how we can extend the life of our wardrobes. McKinsey and Company estimates that around 30% of a garment's total carbon footprint will come from clothing care. But without proper clothing care, all that embodied carbon and water that goes into a garment will likely end up in a landfill or incinerator, as we've discussed in this episode as well. So we need lower impact and better quality clothing, but also lower impact and better quality clothing care that's easier to use. And that's where wear comes in. It's a startup that produces a handheld device that uses 99% less water and 77% less detergent than a conventional washing machine. As well as being sold directly to consumers, wear is used by several fashion businesses, including Selfridges. Our third and final guest speaker for this episode is Wear's CEO, Jonathan Johnny Hewlett. We talk about why, after two decades of working on the production and retailing side of fashion, he was compelled to go into clothing care at a brand with sustainability at its heart. Johnny tells that story in our following talk, so let's play it in full. Yes, hello, Johnny. It is a delight to have you on our podcast today. How are you doing and, and whereabouts are you dialing in from? Hi, Sarah. Um, good to be here. I'm dialing in from the Manchester Central Exhibition Centre where I'm um, attending a trade function. So it's very glamorous um, this Thursday morning here in Manchester. Great. Less glamorous in my makeshift office um, at home. And thank you for taking the time out of your show um, to, to call in and to talk about um, where and I must admit before I got the pitch I wasn't familiar with where um, so for those who are listening and are in that same boat it would be great to start with a brief introduction to the company and to to the products. Sure thing well I mean where is essentially a handheld electrical device so around about the size of a large handbag um, that can clean refresh and protect pretty much any fabric now, in the context of clothes, think of it as what the dust buster is to the vacuum cleaner we are to the washing machine, um, i.e. a product that if you don't have to put your clothes through a full cycle, if they're not either dirty enough or worn enough to, to, to merit that sort, of, uh, that sort of laundry cycle, you can use the wear to either spot clean or lightly refresh um, your garments and you know, return them to new, as it were, without, as I said, the need for laundering. Um, you know, it therefore helps to to cut down the amount of wash. It cuts down the you know the, the damage that inevitably laundry and washing cycles does to clothes, and the speed at which those clothes become dilapidated and sort of thrown away. Um, and therefore, you know, saves the the energy and the water as well as protecting and prolonging the life of clothes. That's that's what wear does. Great, thank you for that overview. Um, and I've I've also got your bio through here in my notes as um, as well. Super interesting career. And I wanted to know why you chose to go into clothing care after yeah more than twenty years in 
fashion, looking at yeah some big brands in terms of of yeah the production side rather than the the yeah. care side. I mean, I think the the, the one word summary is waste um, in my time in fashion I went into fashion in the sort of mid 2000s and this was at a time when the rise of fast fashion the the sort of buy it wear it throw it culture was really beginning to, to to sort of ignite and accelerate and in the time that I spent in that industry which incidentally is the you know on a on a carbon footprint measurement it's the third most damaging industry we have after agriculture and um, and construction, um, the amount, the sheer amount of waste, not just in the consumer habits, where you know we we own three times the amount of clothes we did 20 years ago, and we're keeping them for half as long, um, but also in the operational side. You know, I was a retailer, and and what I saw in terms of clothes being thrown away because they've been dropped, uh, there was shop soils, and they were imperfect. Um, all of that, all of that incredible kind of um, resource waste drove within me, um, you know, a, a real kind of energy to do something different, and that's that's where you know that's where the the idea and the and the, and the project where came from really. Great, and obviously I was going to talk about consumer awareness about about this. I'd say that it's rising, but we probably see more in the news about yeah the the supply chain. Um, and and waste at home than some of the things that you're talking about. So do you think people are aware of how much um, of that whole life cycle environmental impact of their garments comes from, you know, not not making it, but it being in use? So it getting degraded, it getting washed, um, it getting thrown away. I think, you know, I, I think there's definitely a rising awareness. There's no doubt about that. If I look back even a year you know, from, from now versus, you know, where we are today in terms of people's awareness of, of what the fashion industry is doing and, and what our consumer habits within the fashion uh, are doing. I think there's definitely, you know, we're on the right trajectory. There's difference, however, of course, between awareness and, and action. And I think the, the, the consumer habits have still got a huge way to go to, to, to start addressing what, what people are becoming increasingly aware of. And, and that's, of course, where the challenge lies. And and obviously there are many things that drive consumer habits. Things are easier, things are faster, um, things are, are cheaper. I've spoken to other people on this episode about how yeah a lot of people are put off from repair because it might be cheaper for them to go to Primark and buy a new pair of boots than go to their uh, uh, local shop and get a new sole, um, for example. Um, so yeah, I want. I mean, and this is it. We're we're not set up as a. No, Sorry, Sarah. Johnny, you go ahead. It's me. We could we could stop and go back if you want, but what my my point there is, you're right. We're not at the moment set up as uh, as, a, as a as a sort of society or as an industry to help facilitate the the the, the, the extent the prolonged. Right, stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's go back. Let's, can you can you ask the question again, and I'll come in with a succinct answer. No problem. I didn't actually get to the question. <laughs> I think that's the problem. <laughs> i tell you what, why don't I let you get to the question and then I'll come yeah. in with a succinct answer. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Thanks. Sarah. Yeah. Um, so what I'm seeing is essentially that changing consumer habits regards lots of changes, not just in the technologies and services that are there um, to care, but in how affordable and accessible these services are and how easy it is to care for the clothes in the first instance anyway. So I've been on the wear site and seen some testimonials of people saying, oh, I've used this to clean some of my vintage garments and they've never um, looked so good. Um, and obviously it's been said a lot of the time that clothing isn't necessarily made like it was used to um, all the time. So I wanted to get your views on what can be done to improve this across the life cycle so that maybe um, the clothing care side can work with the manufacturing side to really help make clothes last. Absolutely. I mean, as ever in, in this challenge that we face, this existential climate, um, you know, climate change crisis that we face, it will be a triangulation of three things. We need clearly the government and legislation and, and you know, that to be, if you like, the big blocks to be put in place to drive the right kind of behaviour, certainly from business. Businesses will obviously be governed by that, but ultimately they are governed each and every day by what the consumer is telling them and, what, and how the consumer is behaving. And what we're seeing 
seeing in the industry today is definitely an increase in levels of demand to know where the product has come from, how the product can be can, can, can be given a longer life, how the product can be cared for and, and maintained in a way which you know obviously helps um, help save the resource or, or, or get the most out of the resource that went into making it. And, and, and therefore, you know, between the consumer businesses and, and, big, you know, and, and, and the government, that this, this is how the momentum is going to build. I, I think when you link that back to, OK, what, what, can, what can be done tomorrow? You know, we need people to continually challenge, um, you know, what their where their clothes are coming from, how the clothes being made, you know what the what the, the the life expectancy of those clothes should be, and and you know make the right choices of 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 moving away from you know I can buy three of these and you know make them last the same length of time as buying one of something else. Um, it's it's really you know it's it's really encouraging the consumer to think differently about you know, the, the, the overall consumption habit and life cycle of the products and the clothes they're buying. Of course, it's it's a system wide problem. So one part of the system isn't going to change it. And that's that's something I wanted to come on to, really, because most most of our listeners and regular readers at ED um, come from that business block. Of course, we're all consumers, um, but we're B2B. And and yeah, so I wanted to get into how businesses can um, not only innovate but collaborate to help overcome some of those challenges in changing consumer behaviour because as you said it's great that people want more information and that they want more caring and repairing and maintenance services but it can be hard to change habits um, people need to know what's going on and how to access it um, so I wanted to get your learnings on partnering to improve that because I know you have a really great partnership with um, with Selfridges yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the, 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 the point here is, look, you know, we, we operate in markets where ultimately it's all about competition. I think at this stage of the game, there's there's got to be a more, uh, you know, there's got to be a bigger openness to collaboration. And because and, what we're all trying to do is we're trying to drive awareness and education to the consumer that lands in a place where people will change their behaviour. Now, if we're squabbling amongst ourselves, then that's never going to happen, or it's going to happen much, much more slowly. We went to Selfridges with our, you know, with our products, with our idea, and what resonated with Selfridges was that it, it, it linked in perfectly with their Project Earth messaging, and so we joined the direction of flow. And you know, whether or not there are other devices or other products or brands in Selfridges that are, that are offering what we're offering, um, the, the overall you know, the joint objective is the same. You know, we want to provide products to the consumer that helps the everyday life become more sustainable and more environmentally friendly. That's what everybody's trying to do. And, and, and in that respect, there needs to be, you know, there needs to be a bigger, if you like, you know, this needs to be looked at in a, in a longer term, more holistic way. You know, we're, we shouldn't be competing on this level. We should be, you know, we, we should be working together to promote, again, this awareness and education. And that's what, you know, that's what the ethos of our, of our relationship with Selfridges became. It, it became a, you know, it became a collaboration rather than a competition. Great. I, I was going to ask on, on top tips for making a meaningful collaboration. So not just partnering for partnership's sake and for a quick media campaign. And you've mentioned a couple of things there as in like, look for common objectives so between yourself and then Selfridges Project Earthwork um, look at this holistically and maybe to the long term do you have any other ad advice for, for others that might be looking to get a really good um, collaboration? I mean I think it I think it's about being it's been really open to how your you know, your, your product or brand <clears throat> ends up being if you like showcased within such a, a collaboration opportunity. I mean, I'll give you an example. When we when we went to Selfridges, it, it clearly that the, the the main subject on the table was we've got a device that can help people be more sustainable, and that fitted perfectly with their Project Earth theme. In the same conversation, we began to look at what other things the wear could do within the Selfridges ecosystem, and we we fell quickly upon a company called Sneakers ER. Now Sneakers ER um, operate within Selfridges as a sneaker laundry. They clean people's trainers and restore them. Um, 
you know, provide that service to, to Selfridges customers. We were introduced to Sneakers ER. Sneakers ER tested our device, came back and said, this is brilliant because what we can do now is we can clean trainers not, not just much more easily, but in a way that allows us to do less brushing, to damage, you know, the, the, the damage that you inevitably do to a trainer when you, when you, when you want to clean it can actually be reduced by using the wear. Now, that wasn't something we'd ever thought of, but all of a sudden we're now, you know, co-partnering with Sneakers ER, providing them with our wear device to help them clean trainers, again, in a, in a more sustainable and, and, you know, in a way that then protects the trainers as opposed to, you know, erodes them even though they're being cleaned. So it, it's, it's, it's really, I don't want to use the, the, the well-worn expression, think outside the box, but just we need to be really open about where our, our products and our brands could fit within the ecosystem of, of you know, of, of the people that we want to work with. Great, some really succinct and hopefully inspiring advice there, Johnny. Um, I'm aware you're super busy at the event that you're at, and that's probably all the time we have for this part of the podcast. So thank you so much for taking part. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. And with that, that's a wrap for our interviews for this episode. So thank you once again to Johnny. And that is about all we have time for. So thank you for listening. And I hope this has inspired you to think about and implement solutions and actions for a better fashion future this Fashion Revolution Week. This episode is publishing on the final day of Fashion Revolution Week 2022. That's Sunday, the 24th of April. But Fashion Revolution works on this agenda year round. And you can find out more at their website, fashionrevolution.org. And before we sign off, I remember that I promised at the beginning that I wanted to highlight an event we are putting on very shortly. On the afternoon of 28th of April, that's this coming Thursday, we are hosting the Engage Online sessions as part of our week-long editorial campaign on sustainability reporting and communications. Over the course of that afternoon, we'll be hearing from loads of experts in this field, including representatives from Upfield, Vodafone, Crystal Doors, Dentsu, JRP Solutions, Carbon Intelligence, and there's still more to be announced. This is a free-to-attend event, and you can see the full agenda and register to tune in at ed.net forward slash tag forward slash engagement dash week. That's ed.net forward slash tag forward slash engagement dash week. Now, that really is all we have time for on the Sustainable Business Covered podcast for this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, you can access all of our past podcast episodes on our SoundCloud, Apple, Google and Spotify. You can also subscribe to our podcast on any of these platforms to make sure you are in the loop for all our future episodes. But for this episode today, it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.